0: Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and on this week's show, we're excited to have Hernan Kaza, co-founder and managing partner of Kazak Ventures. The firm launched in 2011 has become one of the largest and most well-known Latin American firms with nine funds under management, and over time, they've made early-stage investments in companies such as Nubank, Quinto Andar, Kavak, Creditas, and NuVemShop. Before becoming an investor, Hernan co-founded Mercado Libre in 1999, an online auction and e-commerce platform that later went public in 2008 at a market cap today of over 60 billion. The company represents one of the greatest entrepreneurial successes in that region. During our conversation, we spoke about the growth of Latin America, making the shift from a company builder to a full-time investor, and how founders and investors should think about the capital-scarce market we are navigating today. I think you'll really gain a lot hearing Hernan's insights. And without further ado, let's get right into the show. This episode is being brought to you by Grasshopper Bank. Privately owned and headquartered in New York City, Grasshopper Bank is built to serve the business and innovation economy. As a client-first digital bank, Grasshopper combines technology and years of industry expertise to provide clients with a best-in-class banking experience. Grasshopper's digital solutions are tailored for venture capital and private equity firms, startups, and small businesses. In addition, they also work closely with fintech-focused banking-as-a-service and commercial API banking platforms. Serving clients globally, Grasshopper provides flexible, firm-focused lending solutions as well as dedicated relationship managers committed to meeting the unique needs of funds and companies alike. Grasshopper is a member of the FDIC and an equal housing lender. For more information, visit the bank's website at www.grasshopper.bank or follow on LinkedIn and Twitter. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlock are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Samir or his guests regarding third parties, investments, or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Samir, his guests, or Allocate. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Hernan, it's so great to see you. Thanks for being on the show.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: I think you have such an interesting story, and I love talking to people that went from being an operator to being a full time investor, which you've done. But maybe we can just start with your background of how you got into technology and ultimately what led up to starting Kazakh in 2011.
1: Sure, so going back in time and trying to summarize more than two decades into a few minutes, I went to the Stanford GSB for an MBA, right in the middle of the first tech bubble. It was 97, 98, 99. And obviously, during those days and being there, you could not avoid getting involved in, in technology. So there I started to work in some technology projects, and I met there, who's today is still a very good friend, Marcos Galperin. And he was also doing the same thing, and he was planning on launching what at the time was the eBay model in Latin America and I was working on a different project so we would exchange ideas and and do some research and, and eventually luckily I ended up dropping my project, joined Marcos and together we graduated in May ninety nine, went back to Buenos Aires, and we started Mercado Libre then.
0: So Mercado Libre was it was nineteen ninety nine I believe. Around ninety nine two thousand, ultimately take the company public in two thousand seven. You stay on until two thousand eleven. Throughout those times, it was a journey that you went through, and you learn a lot during those times. What I love asking is the question around when you decided to be a VC in two thousand eleven. What were some of the experiences at Mercado Libre that really informed the type of firm you wanted to build?
1: So yes, we started the company in nineteen ninety nine during a boom bullish market. We raised capital then, and then we went back to the market in March 2000 when the bubble burst, and it was really difficult for us to, to raise capital then, but luckily we ended up closing a round, and with that round that we ended up closing in May 2000, we realized that that was the round that had to take us to profitability. So we raised capital in May 2000, went public in August 2007, still with some of that capital in the bank, the capital that we raised in that round in 2000. And the company it took some time to become profitable. By the end of 2005, we could have made it profitable, but we decided to bet more on growth and postpone for a few quarters profitability. And then uh, by the end of 2006, beginning of 2007, the company was profitable and we IPO'd in the Nasdaq in, 2000, in August 2007. The public company stayed for, for a few more years. And then in the year 2011, I decided to leave Mercado Libre and together with Nicolas Sekasi, who was also part of the founding team of, of Mercado Libre. During the early days of Mercoliva, we used to have a table where Marcos, Nicolás, and I would sit. We, we had worked together for over a decade, uh, and today we decided to launch CASEC. What drove us there? Oh, on the one hand, we saw really in a very personal manner the advantage that technology was bringing to the region. We saw that all the trends that we were reading about the U.S. and maybe later on Asia were also happening in Latin America. There was indeed a lack, a lag at that time, but, but that uh, did not mean that that was not going to happen in Latin America. On the contrary, we thought that in Latin America, the opportunity for technology was larger. In the case of Mercado Libre, for instance, we, we had the, the e-commerce side of the business and we realized that what mercalli was creating into retail in the region was more significant versus what e-commerce players were doing in, in the U.S. Because in Latin America, if you lived in a large city, maybe you had access to some regional retailers. But if you lived in a smaller towns, those regional retailers did not exist. So e-commerce was really providing extra value there. Then Mercolibre also had a payments and financing Business I and mean, in Latin America, financial inclusion is a big issue. The penetration of credit cards and, and banking is slow. So, with technology, you could really disrupt that. And that same, this is the one we we looked into for education, for uh, healthcare, and, and, and now into climate tech and other things. We believe that the value that technology brings into a region like Latin America is more significant versus what you have in other parts of the world, in particular in more developed areas of the world, because obviously you are leapfrogging what maybe incumbents or offline players have done in in those more developed markets. So that was one, one thing that we saw very clearly, and we had no doubts that the full technology revolution was going to happen in in Latin America. And also in our days as entrepreneurs, we had investors, but those investors were more like bankers, so financial institutions that saw what was going on in technology in other parts of the world and wanted to play the tech kind of investment side of it. But those were not investors that knew how to advise entrepreneurs, they did not know how to help entrepreneurs recruit talent, think about the the product strategy, the technology strategy, and those kind of things. So we thought that uh, having built one of the, the most significant technology company in the region, we had an edge versus all those other investors that were working in the industry and also that we could connect better with, with entrepreneurs and be more of a value-add partner rather than just a provider of capital to, to those companies.
0: I want to come back to that in, in terms of what does it mean to add value to companies because there are so many conversations around what does it mean, how do you really add value, how do you actually transform the arc of a company alongside the entrepreneur and I know you think a lot about that, and I want to come back to that in a second. But going back to 2011, Mercado Libre, I think when it went public, it was less than a billion dollar valuation at the time. I think it was closer to 800 million now, obviously much bigger. But you saw all these markers around Latin America, both being ripe for technology disruption, but also the growth of the area. And I think back in 2011, it wasn't very clear that where VC was going to go less than. A half a billion was funded into Latin America more broadly. And what was the mental model of creating a firm versus actually starting a new company and taking advantage of this technology disruption that could happen?
1: Clearly, in the year 2011, Mercalli still had a long way to go. We IPO'd a devaluation of $800 million. During the first day of trading, we passed the billion-dollar mark. And for us, that was amazing. Then the company went all the way up to three, four billion, and then, as you know, the finance, the global financial crisis hit, and Mercado Libre's shares went down eighty percent, ninety percent. So we IPO'd at eighteen dollars per share. Shares went up all the way to eighty, and then when the financial crisis hit, they went down to six dollars. And by the way, it was interesting because obviously we were all scared about what could happen with, with the financial world and financial markets and financial institutions. But Mercury kept on growing every single day. We were producing cash. We had zero debt. So we saw no reason why the company had to be valued at a fraction of what it was a few months earlier. So, so we remained uh, focused on on executing our business plan and happy to see that more and more buyer sellers were, were interacting through our platform and, and eventually clearly things uh, paid out. So by the year 2011, probably the evaluation of the company was 5 billion and there was still significant upside, but the nature of our job had changed. We were really in the trenches in the early days and, and dealing with, with, real life or death problems, Uh, and then the company slowly but still became more of a corporation, still a very agile corporation and with very significant growth ahead, but it was a little bit different and uh, our daily jobs were more about managing people rather than really adding value to what we thought was the the most relevant piece. So I think that it's funny because the initial thinking that Nicolás and I had was we no longer want to be managers. We want to be closer to the action. But at the same time, we, we realized that maybe we didn't have the kind of energy we had in the early days of Mercado Libre when we were working 25 hours per day. So we thought that given our experience, given the opportunities we saw in the region, given what we wanted to do, becoming an investor was something very natural to us as a next step. And that's how we, we ended up doing that. What what is funny is that today Case has grown significantly. So we're back with our managers hat on. But, but it, it it took at least a decade to, to go back there.
0: People sometimes underestimate how long it takes to you know show success, build an organization, which you've successfully done now over I think it's about twelve years now, running the firm. Tell us a little bit about the early days. So you know you 2011, you decide to start a firm. First thing you have to do is fundraise. And coming from the background you did, it wasn't like you rolled off a big firm. You were operators turned VCs. How did you build that LP network? And how did you focus on that first fundraise?
1: It was a long process uh, and it connects well with something that you mentioned earlier, Samir. But what uh, we, we did initially was we decided to raise some capital from ourselves, from our friends at Mercos Libre, and get started with a smaller fund. We thought $50 million would be enough for what the region was at the time, etc. But then people started hearing about our new venture, and, and they decided to join. So some of the investors at Mercos Libre wanted to invest, and some other people that maybe were not investors in the company but had known us over the years also wanted to invest. So, so we ended up raising close to a hundred million dollars, which is funny because at the time looked like a lot, a lot of capital, and now it's just uh, marginal. Well, not not, not not that much, but a couple of years ago it was like nothing, uh, and we started investing uh, those uh, funds. We ended up uh, investing in 24 companies that first fund. Our focus was early stage. So we would invest in seed, series A or, or series B and reserve some capital for follow-on rounds. And that's what we did with the, the first fund. The first fund so, was basically ourselves, highly qualified uh, friends and family, and then at the very end of the, the process, a fund of funds reached out and wanted to invest also. So we allocated some capital to them. And they were the first institutional investors into the fund. We always thought that we wanted to build a firm that was going to stay here for the long run, that was going to hopefully outlive the founders, et cetera. So we liked the opportunity of having a more formal relation with one significant investor so we could get ready for what was going to happen in the following years. But, but what's interesting is that our, our pitch was what I told you earlier, the growth of technology in the region, why we, we thought more of value in the gap that technology would fill in Latin America, the terrific experience we had as, as operators ourselves, etc., and people bought that, and, and, and that's why they wanted to invest. But it was interesting that the most common question then was, okay, I believe you're going to find great founders. I believe that those founders will want to work with you. I believe that you can add some value to, to those companies. Uh, and I know that you're planning to reserve some capital for follow-on. But what, what, what happens next? Who, who's going to provide more capital once you deploy your second, third check? And reality was that we did not know. We were very confident that investors were going to go after good opportunities. And if we had good opportunities, we would present those to them and they would agree on investing in those companies. But we couldn't name precisely where that capital was coming from uh, and and couldn't give enough indications of what was going to, to happen and it's interesting to see that in some of those rounds we had to be very creative in helping the entrepreneurs find ways to access capital so in, in some cases we used our relationships uh, and connected a past investor of Mercado Libre with a, with this company because we thought there was kind of common ground for for getting interest there or or we started reaching out to people that then would connect us with someone that would help that company raise. At the beginning, part of the value add, and that's part probably of the second question you had there, is that what was helping companies fundraise, and we were very active there. We were kind of a, a, an egg investment bank boutique helping those entrepreneurs find capital. Today, that's no longer needed because Latin America, technology Latin America is in the radar screen of all the relevant global investors. But, but at that time, that was an effort that we had to to make. And interestingly, so the first fund, there was one institutional investor, and then eventually we added a couple more in our second fund. And, and by now that we've raised... Uh, six times nine funds because then we added to the early stage fund also an opportunity fund today most of the capital comes from institutional investors and within institutional investors the one we try to the ones we try to favor are the foundations or the endowments those kind of investors that on the one hand are are really long-term focused value add on the other hand those investors make our work more interesting, right? Because we're working for their missions and that's part of the responsibility we have today to to return more capital so they can really have more impact in whatever mission they they have, which are always really amazing missions. Yeah, it's amazing to, to see both how
0: you've scaled as an organization, the brand, what you've done in terms of the investing, going back to that fund one, which was hundred million dollars, of course, a lot of happy LPs having new bank in that fund one, but kind of going back for a second, you know, making that transition from working at a company and then actually starting and building a firm often And there's this continuous learning curve that you have to go through. T- tell us about maybe the first couple of years of learning. And did you, before you started the fir- firm, seek out any mentors to help you make that transition?
1: Yeah, no. So we, we thought erroneously, that moving from one side of the table to the other one was going to be very natural. We knew how to run a company. We knew how to build a tech platform. We knew how to hack the system here or there to to increase growth or improve profitability, margins, etc. So we thought it was going to be, and we knew how to deal with investors because we had done that for a decade. So we thought that it was going to be very easy to to move from one side to to the next. But but interesting is some. Of, of those beliefs were right and many were wrong. And I think that the, the two most important ones that we didn't get quite well was one, this uh, phenomenon of the power law. We thought that because we were former entrepreneurs and knew the region like nobody, et cetera, that we could really find many winners and that we could help many companies become winners, et cetera. And at the end of the day, we have the same concentration of results that you see across the industry globally. So you invest in, in, in 20, 30 companies per fund, and then when you look at the returns of those funds, even when they do really, really well, it comes out of one, two, three companies, most of it. So so that, that was something that, that we did not understand well at the beginning. And then the other part is that I think when, when you're an entrepreneur, you're all the time thinking about winning uh, and you don't want to lose any battle. So if there's a problem, you just go, go deep into it and, and look for ways to solve it. And if you cannot solve it the first time, you try again, you try again, and you try again, and until you really solve it. And when you become an investor, obviously you want to help Everyone, and, and, and that's part of the reputation you, you build as a firm, and that's why then the following generation of entrepreneurs want to be part of your portfolio. But you need to understand that if you just work uh, in a way trying to solve problems, maybe you're not doing your job because it's more about being a catalyst to those companies that are doing really, really well and take them to 100 to 1,000 versus trying to save companies that are struggling between zero and one, zero and one, zero and one. And the initial natural reaction for people that had been in the operation, had been entrepreneurs, had been really trying to solve, as I said, life, life or death situations, is to try to solve those companies. You didn't want to see anyone going down, and that was not the right thing to do. So so we ended up uh, learning that and, and trying to understand how to better calibrate our value-add, our support to companies. Again, always helping entrepreneurs. Uh, that's something that is part of our brand, uh, and you need to have that brand so the, the circle keeps on spinning, and entrepreneurs tell new entrepreneurs that you're good for them, and not only the, the ones that do well, but also the ones that are struggled. So, so you get the next generation of entrepreneurs, and then you do that again, and you get the, the following generation of good entrepreneurs et cetera. But you need to be smart and try to really put all your effort or most of your effort into companies that will produce most of the results.
0: Well, you're touching on something really important, which is around how you also manage your time in terms of working with entrepreneurs. You know, an average, let's say an early stage fund invests in 25 to 40 companies. And it does usually follow that power law where 10% of the companies will drive most of the returns will be you'll have to have a fund returner maybe two fund returners in there. Then you have 40 to 50% of the companies that effectively return zero to one X. And then you have things in the middle that are doubles and maybe triples, maybe a few singles along the way. But as you're building in the early days, you don't know for sure. Over you know, the course of two or three years, you start to get the signal which companies are moving directionally. But how do you think about the messaging for those companies that are zero to one? Because you want to retain your brand as being very founder supportive but at the same time there's only so many hours in a day so how do you think about your time as the as the portfolio matures and you know which companies are breakout versus not
1: yeah so you don't know for sure in particular at the beginning you start working with companies and our thinking is that we make an investment if at the time of that first check we believe that that company can be a fan maker obviously then reality hits and for 80% of the companies that ends up not being the case, but, but we learned that over time. And sometimes you have entrepreneurs that are doing a great job and really working day and night and, and basically delivering on everything they, they told you they were going to do, but, but technology doesn't catch up with the market, or maybe there's something that, that is not there and, and therefore they cannot build the kind of company they try to build. So, you, you have to understand, and it's more art than science in that regard, because sometimes it's, okay, you need to, to support the entrepreneurs so they can maybe pivot a little bit and and, and and try to recalibrate the business plan. In some other cases, like you just need to be a little more patient. That's something that, that we've learned. Typically, when you are innovating at big scale, takes time to really take off. Uh, and it's not that you are pursuing the wrong idea, but it's just that maybe timing is, is not exactly what you thought and you need to do more. So, so you need to, to react on what you see, remain always open, be a little naive in that regard, and be more of the believer than, than the one that says, you know what, this is uh, enough, let's shut it down. Because you you don't know, and reality is obviously. Then by year three, four, five, maybe things become very evident, and then you start managing a little more your your time allocation and your resource allocation. Because not only us as partners, but we also have a couple of of groups within the organization. One dedicated to to technology and growth that try to work across the portfolio, helping companies in things related to technology to online marketing to product usability and then we have another group around HR that what they do is try to help recruit talent into the companies and then also try to implement good HR practices into those companies etc so the way we allocate the the time of those two teams plus our time starts to to become more evident by your three, four, five of the company. Before that, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and you need to call the shots on, on a daily basis. And sometimes you go really too much in one direction and then you correct. It's not uh, perfect a, at all. And it's funny because we, we, we all the time tell our entrepreneurs that they need to create scalable platforms and that they need to be very precise on what to do and what not to do. We don't walk our talk in that regard that much.
0: One thing that's interesting is when you started Mercado Libre in the 99-2000 time frame, obviously at the tail end of the dot-com, but even during that journey, going up to the public offering in 2008, capital was relatively scarce, especially in, in the area you were, but even more broadly. And then 2011, you start the firm, coming off the global financial crisis, wasn't quite clear at that time. We'd see so much capital available for startups for growth. And as we sit here at the midpoint of 2023, of course, we're back to a capital scarce market. And I'm curious how you think about, as a firm, how to help companies navigate during a time where they have to show growth, but they also have to do in a very capital, non-intensive way, and coming off a period where a lot of entrepreneurs and founders have never seen anything like that.
1: It's a very interesting point. And I think uh, comparing what happened in the year 2000 and what, what, what happened today, the common thing is that capital is less available today as it was less available by then versus what had happened in the prior cycle when capital was very available, maybe too available. What is different is that when we started Mercolibre, there were no internet users. So we had to be patient because there was no critical mass. Technology business are mainly around economies of scale. So that means that you need volume because serving a hundred customers or having, serving a hundred thousand customers, it doesn't imply that you need to multiply your cost by a thousand, but your income does multiply by a thousand typically. So, so you really want to reach scale. And in those early days, scale was not possible. So you had to be patient and pace yourself, not only because you had little capital, but also because you had to wait for the market to get there. When we started Mercado Libre, internet penetration was 2%, and then it was 3%, and then it was 5%, and then broadband came, and, and then eventually mobile internet came. So we had to be very patient. Today, you need to be very careful about how you handle resources, because you don't have that much capital available and and you need to ensure that you can demonstrate that you're building a self-sustainable business, something that, not today, because in this industry are all the time investing for the future, but in a reasonable future, you'd be able to to self-sustain the company and not that you will need another round, another round, another round, because light at the end of the tunnel is miles, miles, miles away. So so that piece remains the same, but the difference is that today you do have critical mass out there. So if you hit product market fit today, you can really have a profitable business if you have the right business model. In the past, even with product market fit, you had to wait because (laughs) costs were high and income was low and you needed more users to eventually get online and eventually to get into broadband, etc. So, so that, that's kind of what you need to somehow calibrate better today. It's not only about waiting. It's also about setting the right pace. So if you go too slow, someone may outpace you. If you go too fast, maybe you run out of capital and cannot uh, demonstrate uh, that what you're building makes sense. So we always tell entrepreneurs that it's around two things. One, product market fit. So do not accelerate too much. If you don't feel, you have it there. And what does product market fit mean? Could could mean many things, but for us is somehow the growth engine is working. So, so retention becomes positive. So you add 10 customers and the following day, you don't have nine. You have 11 because things start to, to work uh, and slowly but steadily you see that customers are happier and happier with your solution, etc. So you need to make sure that you have that. And then on the other hand, you need to make sure that the marginal cost, so maybe total cost might be negative because again, maybe you have too much infrastructure for the volume you have at the time, but the marginal costs are lower than marginal income. And, and that's the, the key, key piece. So if you're buying something for 10 and selling that for 11, you might be fine. If you're buying something for 10 and selling that for eight, you you might have a problem. So you need to to really calibrate those two things and ensure also that you allow yourself some some room for, for, for problems, right? Because as we were saying earlier, innovation takes time to take off. So even if you're on the right track, you think you have product market fit, something may not work on a quarterly basis. Then maybe when you look at the year, when we look at the history of the company, things seem to be terrific. But in a particular quarter, in a particular semester, things are slower. So you need to have some some cushion there. And that's what we try to, to manage with, with entrepreneurs. And that was what we did a lot last year, right? So we came from a market of excesses where everyone raised too much capital and where many companies started to pursue too many projects. So maybe they had the core project and maybe one that was synergistic with it, but suddenly they had so much capital that they started pursuing five, 10 projects at, at the same time. And everyone lost discipline. Everyone started to be very, very inefficient in terms of how to, to manage their resources, et cetera. So, 2021, 2022, more more, 2022, we started really helping companies refocus on their core. Projects. What is really what you're trying to build? What will really make your company different? Cut down on the other things and and really recalibrate plans so you would reduce your growth rate instead of growing five x, maybe you grow two x, but instead instead of burning a hundred million dollar just to to exaggerate, you you burn uh, five. So so really calibrating that to ensure that whenever you go back to the market, you can clearly show that you have. A sustainable business model, or maybe you even get to profitability, and then you look for more capital because you want to accelerate growth then. But that capital doesn't put you between a rock and a hard place.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and it's hard to change when you have so much capital being thrown at you, and it creates the culture of just growing very quickly and figuring things out later in terms of business fundamentals. And you mentioned the word discipline, and I I think that's true. We're all returning to a world of forced discipline because of capital scarcity. Now, when you think about your role, and you're in a very unique position because you've been on both sides of the uh, the table, as an entrepreneur going to VC, one area that we've often seen VC struggle with when they've made that shift is how to work with founders. So some have gone the route of getting too close, going too deep in the weeds and almost trying to run the company, while others, perhaps as a function of having a bad experience as an entrepreneur or working with VCs, go and overrate to being so supportive of the founder, they kind of listen to anything. And I know you've thought about this a lot and want to act as this nice balancing point where you can be supportive, but also act as a very objective and clear sounding board. Maybe tell us a little bit how you do that and what that means for the firm.
1: No, you're absolutely right. Like If you start a company during a period of scarcity, I think all the right elements come into play. First, you you end up meeting only those entrepreneurs that are totally convinced about what they want to do. And they are not doing it because, oh, the market is easy, so I can fundraise and maybe explore this idea that I may want to pursue in a hard market. The entrepreneurs you come across with are the ones that are totally convinced that they feel that they cannot do anything else but launch their company. Right. So, so that is, so there, there's a positive selection process there. Then those companies, because they end up raising less capital as an investor, you get a typically a higher level of ownership, which is good for the return of the fund, but, but also the companies really focus on what's important, so they don't kind of lose focus and start pursuing twenty things. They want to do just one thing really, really, really well. And what we say, great companies are built after doing one thing extraordinarily well—not too many. Okay, right, and so so there's a positive thing there. And then because the team needs or knows that they have to produce their own resources to eventually keep on growing they really focus on on building a sustainable business. So you do have the right DNA. The people you attract at the time also are people more committed with the mission and not so much with the market momentum, et cetera. So you end up creating a great, great initial kind of set of of genes that will then help you long-term. And it's much easier with that right set of genes to eventually decide, you know what, now the market is positive and we have... Uh, lots of capital, so let's accelerate and let's go a little bit overboard with marketing or overboard with growth. Or, but you do that with a very healthy base. This is exactly the contrary that happens when you get the company started with a very bullish market. So you raise more than you need and you start focusing on too many things because you the entrepreneur, but also the investors tell you that you need to do more and grow faster, etc., so you start kind of generating a set of genes that are just developed for growth without paying attention to cost of capital. And then when you need to adjust, it's much harder to adjust that versus the other scenario where you do have the right core, but then you need to adjust for faster growth. So, so I think in that regard, that is, it's it's a much healthier situation than the one we're, we're in now. And that has happened many times in the past, right? And it's, Uh, When there are excesses in the market is because we all tend to overlook for risks uh, and and challenges and and cost of capital and really focus on everything will work. And suddenly you go to the other end of the spectrum and you become very negative on everything and you don't even believe that technology will will work, etc. And it takes a few investors to start kind of saying, you know what, we've been too much to this side of the pendulum I think it's time to, to start investing because now price uh, risk reward makes sense. So so they start adjusting things. So it's about uh, ambition, perception of, of risk and, and perception of, of the upside that needs to, to be readjusted. And I think that now we're in that process. So if we just talk about CASEC, as I said, 2022, we basically worked with our companies to recalibrate their plans the very, very few investments that we did were within the portfolio and just to help companies that we, we like, but maybe had a, a cash crunch, et cetera, get to the other side of the shore, et cetera. And now this year, we we're starting to invest in in, in new companies. So we we're building again our portfolio. And, and when you are uh, an investor, you know this very well, Samir, you, you typically wear two hats, if we look at it for for a longer period of time, it's 50/50. So 50 50% percent you have the the heart of portfolio formation, and 50 percent you have the 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 heart of uh, portfolio management. But but then what happens within a year, within a quarter it depends on on the needs uh, of the companies, of your portfolios, of the status of of the market. So. 2022 was a year of 100% portfolio management. And this year, we're going back to the 50-50. We are still working actively with, with companies, but we're also looking into new opportunities. Uh, and probably if we go back to to second half of 2020 or 2021, it was too much around portfolio formation uh, and not enough on portfolio management
0: maybe said another way in terms of you know where you are, you're right. There's that there's just two elements, which is portfolio management, which is, you know, working with the companies, helping to catalyze growth, adding value, looking at, you know, liquidity as, you know, avenue to generate, you know, capital back to the fund and back to the LPs. And then of course the picking at the at the front end. But when we think about your arc going from operator to now 12 years as VC, I think you're you might be reaching longer time as a VC pretty soon than what you did at than at Mercado Libre. How have you sort of morphed your style toward entrepreneurs? Because, you know, I asked the question, but maybe I'll ask it in a different way. It is very difficult to think about what you want to be known for as a firm when working with founders. And some people say founder friendly and their definition is we're going to support, support the founder no matter what. There's other folks like Doug Leone and Mike Moritz and Sequoia who have been. They're very direct. They're always thinking about the shareholder. They've been very successful. Their interface is much different than a lot of other, you know, general partners. How have you evolved your own sort of model, and what do you think is the right model?
1: So first, this year I, I passed the mark. So now I have more time as an investor, as an entrepreneur operator. I thought that it was. Never going to happen, but it has happened. <laughs> Time goes by, I can say. But no, what you're saying is, 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 is great. And what we try to do is to really add value to the companies. We say that our mission is to help entrepreneurs increase the chances of success that their ventures have. Obviously, 99% of the work will come out of the founders, the team, etc. But we try to add that. 1% into the formula. So chances of success increase. Uh, and for doing that, our style is to be brutally honest. We're not cheerleaders. We're not there, for, hey, go, go, go. We've seen many, many board meetings where uh, other investors are, are just applauding the entrepreneurs instead of raising their hand and trying to show them, I think they're wrong, look, look at this, look at that. At the end of the day, then the entrepreneurs are the ones that call the shots. Unless there's, I don't know, a very significant issue, we never, ever interfere. The entrepreneur and the entrepreneurs are the ones that make the final call. We're more like contrarians in that regard. And and if the entrepreneur confirms his or her belief, fantastic, We're, we're, we're happy. But at least he or she thought twice before making that decision and... If they prove us wrong, we celebrate. We're not in the business of trying to be right. We're in the business of hopefully generating a good outcome for our LPs. We tend to be very, very direct. And it's interesting because in the long-term relations that we've had with entrepreneurs, I think that permeates and people really value our style. And I understand that our only intention is to improve the chance of success of the company. And that's it. Short term, sometimes it generates some friction, and some entrepreneurs are very comfortable with that friction, and some others are a little more uncomfortable. But if you're really, really uncomfortable with that, maybe you're not the kind of entrepreneur you want to work with. Because when I work with people that, again, as as, as I said about Kasek, it happens with, with them. They don't care about who's right. They care about what's the best decision for the company. How can we make this business successful? And I think uh, that that is the way we try to position things so being an entrepreneur friendly I don't know if it's the, the right definition for for Kasec I think it's being entrepreneurs supportive being there for the long run being totally available when there's a problem I think we 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 really deliver on those areas do we deliver in being the the friendliest we, we respect everyone and treat everyone with the the highest possible respect. And if we disagree, we disagree on the matter, not on the person. And We always have the highest respect for for, for people individually. But uh, we may disagree on, on business decisions and we think that that creates a, a positive discussion. We don't do that for, for the sake of discussing. If we agree, we agree and, and fantastic, we support it. But if there's there's something that we think is not clear enough or something that we think might not be the right Answer for for the challenge we're facing, we, we say it.
0: Yeah, you know it's interesting because uh, I was talking to this is a different podcast. I don't know if it was picked up during the uh, the actual final you know release, but I asked this question about founder friendly and I said, "Hey, what does it mean to you?" And they're like, "Well, we don't use that term here he said i'm I'm shareholder aligned, and so any decision that I'm making is on behalf of all the shareholders, all the employees, the management, the preferred shareholders. And we are looking to get this company to the right place. Sometimes that's going to require really tough decisions and you know, tough conversations. But the more courageous conversations you have, the easier it becomes over time and the better value that you drive. And I thought that was a really interesting sort of way to think about
1: it. I totally agree with that. And if you go back to our portfolio, there were some very tough discussions at some and some some points. And if you speak with those entrepreneurs today, they are the ones that value Catholic the most because, hey, guys, you really were there trying to, to do the right thing. or And maybe they ended up doing what they wanted to do, but, but at least they received uh, our different thinking in a positive way. And and sometimes they, they realize that what we're saying was right. And and when things flow very naturally, and it's, you know this, in this industry, even the most successful cases Never go in a smooth ride. There's always some hiccups here or there and a problem. And if you just ignore those problems and, and keep on cheering for whatever the founder is saying, you're not doing your job.
0: Totally agree with that. So I want to maybe end with a, a higher level question around two decades plus entrepreneur and investor. What is the best piece of career advice? And you know, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about two books that uh, you you thought your favorite, you know, Steve Jobs and Warren Buffett, and maybe you're pulling from those. But I'd love to hear, you know, what is the best piece of career uh, advice you've ever received?
1: Two, two things: one, more as an entrepreneur, but then it uh, goes well into an investor as well. Is this concept of management is about what not to do, and we talked a lot about today about it, and and picking what is your core and, and remain. Focus there versus trying to create many alternatives, et cetera. At the end of the day, you need to be great at one thing, and that one thing means to say no, no, no many times. The same thing happens with, with with entrepreneurs. So that that that's one important thing. And then the other one that that probably goes into being an investor, but also it was very relevant when we were entrepreneurs, is you, you need to have the right combination when you're making a decision or when you're running a company or when you're planning for your portfolio formation, you need to have the right balance between being very self-confident and very humble at the same time. And sometimes those things look conflicting with each other, but I think they are not exactly the opposite. Like you need to have a view of the world and be convinced that that is the way things will work and, and try to, set up your decision-making process around that view, but then be very humble that you don't know for sure that you're right. So if someone brings relevant information, you have to pay attention to that. Keep your your confidence very high, but your ego very low. Uh, And that's something that naturally for for human beings is is not the the normal status, right? So, So we need to be very aware of that and requires lots of self-awareness to, to try to be there. And that is what allows you to make good decisions as an investor and, and very importantly also for founders to build the right company, define the right strategies, et cetera.
0: Love that framing. And, you know, I think that's right. And even as in my shoes as a founder, I, I always think about we have to have a high conviction and confidence in what we can and are able to do, but still have that shred of doubt that, creates that constant level of curiosity and understanding that there may be an opposing view that we're missing or there's a blind spot. So I really think that's a great piece of advice, Renan. This has been really fun going through the story of you, Kazek. You've built an incredible firm over a long period of time, and I'm very excited about continuing to have this discussion with you and following the, uh, the arc of the firm. But thanks again for being on.
1: No, thank you so much for, for the time, the great questions. I'm looking forward to staying in touch.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our episode with Hernan. To learn more about him or Kazakh Ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.